Hi everyone, this is Brian Reisman, host of Side Jams, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Be sure to keep up with the show on Facebook, Instagram, or through my Brian Reisman account on Twitter. Hi, this is Lily Hayden, and you're listening to Side Jams with Brian Reisman. As a member of the police, guitarist Andy Summers created an indelible international reputation and became part of rock and roll history. The British power trio achieved iconic status through five acclaimed studio albums and high-energy performances between 1977 and 1984, and they have won five Grammy Awards, sold 75 million albums, and been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But you can't pigeonhole Summers playing into just that short span of time. In more than 35 years since, his solo career has found him delving into everything from ambient to jazz to soundtrack recordings, with his guitar playing maturing and taking on new dimensions of sound. Over the years, he has collaborated with King Crimson guitarist Robert Fripp and Soft Machine guitarist John Etheridge, and he has recorded with names like Joan Armitrading, Tony Childs, John Lord, and Carly Simon. Andy's 15th studio album, Harmonics of the Night, is due out on October 15th. While music certainly keeps him occupied, Andy also loves to write fiction. For episode 53 of Side Jams, we spoke about his new book, Fretted and Moaning, a collection of 45 short stories, that number is so apropos for vinyl fans, written across a span of many, many years. In this collection, Andy tells tales of guitarists, or musicians, or music aficionados, their triumphs, their tragedies, foibles, fears, in witty and revealing ways, and with a unique sense of narrative style. He even includes some historical figures. His story inspirations come from friends, associates, and his own illustrious career. This was my first time speaking with Andy, and it was a true pleasure to interact with him. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat. Yeah, okay. I've been reading your fretted and moaning here. Good. Which I've been enjoying, and it's interesting because it's funny how you have a lot of guitar terminology in there. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a drummer, but it's interesting that you keep a lot of the music language in there. You don't just... You know, so for someone who really is into that stuff, then I, they'll appreciate it. Well, yeah. I mean, you could say I just wrote this book for guitarists to read, which is not entirely true because I think it's a bit, a bit beyond that. But um, Oh, yeah. No, for sure. It's definitely true information from the inside, if you like. It, it has a lot of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll aspect in different portions, depending upon yeah. what the story is. I mean, it's yeah. interesting how sex does ca- cross over in the motivations of a lot of the men in these stories. Well, you know... Uh, well, the world has changed, but I was going to say we're opposite genders. These things happen, you know, as music, power, attraction, all the rest of it is what makes the world go around. Sure. That's well, the, there's the the cowboy story, which I like. Yeah. With was... Roy Rogers and Gene Autry. And that, you know, and the, and, the, and the young Indian woman who actually is the one that's saving them from starvation and getting yeah. through this yeah. rugged landscape, they can't do yeah. it themselves. Yeah, that's right. I, I just commented on that song this morning. In fact, it's the other way around. It's, it's the girl that saves the day. Yeah. There's so many. There's like 40, there's 45 stories in no, here. No, it's a lot. And I just actually, just, I was just reading the uh, Django Reinhardt, Pablo Picasso story of them being roommates. But they weren't actually roommates, but I think, or they, Picasso said he no, did of course play. they weren't. No, it was just a quirky, funny thing that suddenly occurred to me one night while I was you know, fooling around with all of this. And I had this idea about those same time period. Uh, but why not? Well, not only that is I think Picasso claimed he did. He played once with Django. Oh, did he? Yeah, I looked that what up before I talked to you. And I'm like, oh, oh. oh. And obviously, they're around the same time period. But what put, brought those two characters together for you in your mind? Yeah, I, 
Well, I, I don't know why I suddenly thought of that. Like, Pat, you know, I don't know what inspired. I, I just can't remember why, how I came up with that. And I was just kind of idling about one night. And maybe I thought about trying to do something with Django initially as a guitar thing. And then it sort of, you know, turned into this thing with uh, Pablo Picasso. And then I imagine them being roommates, poor, you know, starving young artists, and, you know, trying to come up with some stuff. But, uh, you know, I know enough about both of their, you know, work and their lives to to be able to, you know, throw in some things in there like, you know, where Django says, well, why not Guernica? And he goes, and Pal says, well, I don't like that, but uh, let me remember that. I'll maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing is I think it's interesting because I'm, and I'm Gen X, but I get a lot of those references. I mean, I've seen Guernica. I went there. I was just in the Prado a few years ago with my mom. Yeah. We went to the Prado. We went to the, the Reina Sofia. Maria, That's incredible. Which actually, I think, is better than the Prado. I agree. I don't like the Prado too much. I, let me just tell you something about the Prado because I went there many years ago, and it was all dark and dirty, and it wasn't cleaned up. And I went there again about oh maybe even last year or the year before. Right. And it's all cleaned up and brightly lit, and the whole <laughs> incredible dark Spanish vibe of it was gone. So the one across the road, the Reina Sofia, where the Guernica is, yeah, is, is much better. I would get confused. So Guernica's there, but then that's right. But then there's the um, Hieronymus Bosch triptych, Garden of Earthly Delights, which I think yeah. maybe at the Prado, and I thought it was at the Reina Sophia. But I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I'll I'm not that up. sure about that. I, I'm sure that Guernica is in the Reina Sophia. Yeah, and it was cool to see it. I mean, you you sort of sit there for like a half an hour because it's well, you so know, it used to be at the Museum of Modern Art in, in New York. I remember that. I don't know how long ago that was, but then, then it got taken back to Spain. That's right. That's right. That's it's been a long time. Yeah. I went to Spain for the first time in high school in in '86. So we actually missed seeing the Prado because the kids had gone dancing at a disco the night before, and then they <laughs> overslept. And it was three or four of us that were awake, and I'm like, yeah. I almost just left the group and went out by myself, but I think my teacher would have been freaked out. And if for any reason I got yeah. lost, I'd be in trouble. It's funny. I've been sent on a lot of junkets for music and for movies, but I always try to find the local museums. I always, if I'm in Berlin well, or Brussels. Uh, it's great. And you've got the three great, you've got the other um, sort of private one, the Chris at Thorson Beeson one or whatever it's called. Right. And there's wearing stuff here and then probably all, all there. It's amazing, actually. Yeah, I mean, what I enjoy about this book is the fact that, you know, you sort of have high art and you have low art and you cross different genres of music and yeah. different time periods. And a lot of times you don't always say when the time periods, like sometimes you can go, oh, that's the 60s or that might be the 90s. Like you actually are purposely vague about stuff. You let the reader figure it out. And then also some of the stories sort of have that whole, oh, Henry kind of twist. And then other ones end in the middle of something like there is a cliffhanger. Something is going to happen. You can probably imagine what it is, but in other instances, it might not be the thing you think it is. It's like yeah. you're left wondering what's going on. Well, it's that's like, good. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's the kind of European sensibility I grew up with because all the films that I loved, all the sort of art house stuff, there are no Hollywood endings. It's all left completely open. Yeah. Yeah. And it would not be my style to, you know, close it all up and everything works out perfectly. That's Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of these have got these rather, dire endings or slightly diabolical <laughs> endings for people yeah yeah, yeah I'm, I'm looking I'm, I'm, there are so many also i mean there's also another thing where you occasionally have these magazine interviews yeah and there's the one there's the one the one great one called which what strings do you use yeah and the entire time their interviewer is asking him that question and he's just answering the questions that he'd rather have the guy ask him 
And yeah, I'm, sure, I'm else... sure you've been through that yourself many times. Oh, of course. It's absolutely based on reality, you know, Guitar Nerd magazine. But uh, I actually did just act that one out. I read it for the, uh, to go on Instagram. Yes, he, you know, I call him Mikey Van Stoker. The guy asks him the dumb question over and over. And, you know, Mikey Van Stoker just goes on at length about his own mythology, you know. <laughs> so. Well, and then there's also the other interview where they have the, the composer who's so completely full of himself that any attempt to have an intelligent dialogue, he he, he recognizes it, but he still wants to think he's better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like he actually has an interviewer that takes him seriously, but evidently not seriously enough. Yeah. Um, you know, and then there's the whole kind of uh, punk versus prog rock story. Yeah, I enjoy that one. Yeah. And different stories dealing with infidelity. And kind of thinking what you can get away with. And then obviously men who, I mean, let's face it, in the music industry, in the entertainment industry, a lot of it has been driven by sex. Um, and the Absolutely. Me Too movement has kind of changed. Actually, I don't know that the Me Too movement actually has hit the music industry yet with the same force that it did uh, the movie industry. I'm kind of curious to see where that ends That's up. That's an interesting point. Yeah, no, because obviously the movie industry is dealing with that big time, uh, especially since you've had people like Harvey Weinstein and all yeah. that shit come up um and one thing about all that that was so amazing is that it, it, it seemed to go to business executives political people and so maybe people in the industry but never the music industry you know um hello male rock stars to be did they get away with all of this it's it, it, it's never happened never it's amazing i think also what's interesting is what i like about the way you're putting these stories together is you're someone who got known for rock music, but your solo career has gone off in so many different places from yeah. jazz to ambience. And you've tried a lot of different things. And yeah. I'm a very eclectic listener. I have a new record that'll be out right after this is this goes finally goes onto Amazon. I have a new record in, yeah, in October. It's called harmonics of the night. Mm, that's a cool title. I'm pretty, pretty pleased with it. The only weird thing is it's been sitting around for so for about 18 months because of the pandemic. So it's yeah, yeah, yeah. been a bit of a gap for me in terms of output. I usually crank one out about every 12 months, 14 months, something like that. Old anyway, school. <laughs> You're still old school. You know, everyone takes four years to do an album. I now. know. It's incredible. What are you doing for four years? Christ, don't you get bored with it? There are an endless tour is what's going on, especially a lot of the older bands. Although I still appreciate... You know, I have this, there's this thing that bugs me, which is that, you know, I, I, I feel like a lot of my fellow Gen Xers are very good at trying to stay on top of new music. Like they're yeah. not like our parents who would, they liked what they liked. And you, and you do fall into that gap as you get older of you like the stuff that you grew up with and it's the best time ever, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, they actually, a lot of my friends are good about keeping up with newer artists, but I do feel this comes somehow neglect the artists that they loved growing up and listening to their new music. Yeah. Like, I love the last Billy Idol record. I thought it was great. Billy Idol? Um, yeah, the last Billy Idol record from wow. seven years ago, Kings and Queens of the Underground. And it's, everyone thinks he always does this raucous music and half of his older albums are mellow. They're not all, it's not all this punky kind of stuff. It's actually, there's mm. ballads and these moody tracks. And this new album is just like that. It starts off with these high energy tracks. It deals with the ups and downs of his life, dealing, coping with addiction. The first song is called Bitter Pill. It's about basically trying to stay sober for somebody. You know, talks about all the people he's seen come and gone in his life. And the last song is called Whiskey and Pills. It's like when he just can't take it anymore, he just gets fucked up. Like, you know, and it goes, it totally goes against the opening song. Wow. <laughs> Good old Billy. Who knew? I didn't know that. Wow. It's a, it, uh, Duran Duran did a great album 10 years ago. The last Judas Priest album was great. It's like people sort of want to act like, 
you know, the greatest stuff was always at the beginning. And I, I disagree. I mean, obviously, as no, I, well, you've, matured, thank you. you've matured quite a bit, right? You've, you're, you're doing way different stuff than you Absolutely. did. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you look at other, you know, writers and painters, everybody sort of accepts, well, they got better as they got older. You know, their craft was great. It was exactly the same with musicians. I like to feel like I get better all the time, that I'm not like declining at all, but, you know, just of course. still learning and still getting it better. And so I, that's an extremely valid point. One that people go, well, you know, you're good in the beginning, and then they were no good anymore. Not true. Oh, not you, at all. You learn the craft, you should get better at it. Look at the police reunion tour, you know. We came back 20 years after the original breakup. Yeah. But we'd, none of us had stopped playing. And I thought we would played better than ever. I thought we'd played everything better. Everything sounded better. You know, sure. sure. And you guys had all gone off and done some jazzy stuff yeah. at some point. Even though Stuart, when I interviewed him, claimed he hates jazz. It's like, dude, you've got a, like a swing to your playing. Come on. <laughs> it's in there. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know, and he got into African music, and you've and you you've done a lot. I've gone into everything. Yeah, you're very close. How is Harmonics of the Night going to be different? Different? How does it, how does it fit into your continuum? Um, well, I was just thinking. You know, I made last three records of Metal Dog. When I started to get more into this, well, I, know, I hardly call it experimental. It's not really. It's it's fairly jazzy. It's harmonically sophisticated. Yeah, it's more like sort of ECM music um icm yeah i remember ECM. i've got a number there stefan yeah, yeah. was one i got in them that label yeah it's an influence so these three records and i i sort of think of this as a trilogy this third one you know i'm playing all the instruments and so i'm layering them and making them and it takes time to make these tracks when you do it all yourself yeah, so yeah. You, you know it's like painting until you really get it go i think we're there and you know i i i hope that they're generically fresh that's you know that I, I don't want them to sound like bebop and they're not going to sound like swing and they're not going to sound like punk rock they're going to be you know my the way i hear things this one is um pretty spacey it starts off with uh, a solo guitar improvisation it was 20 minutes yeah solo with this beautiful sound and i broke it into two pieces on the album and it sort of proceeds from there it's almost like a hip contemporary chamber music with mm. some guitar solos in there you know yeah i feel like there's just a world of music when i started in music journalism back in 95 i mean i was yeah. i had gone through my metal phase as a kid yeah i think one of the first rock songs i ever heard on the radio was roxanne i'm like who is that and i almost thought he was like a latin singer because i just didn't know <laughs> as a kid and i was like yeah. who is that you know like and then i got into some pop and rock and then once you know things like judas priest and thrash metal hit that was full bore for three and a half four and a half years in school yeah. and that kept going throughout my life but i have you know, gone on like, you know, I'm a big fan of Serge Tonkian from System of a Down. And he has gone on that kind of route where he doesn't, he really hasn't done a metal album in a long time. Yeah. His newest album had some unused system tracks that the fell when there was, the reunion fell apart. But, you know, he's done orchestral stuff. He's done acid jazz. He just put out a piano concerto. He paints. And it's interesting how a lot of you guys do go a different route. And there's some artists that stay just in the rock idiom, which is fine. But it seems like, You've always had that hunger to try other things. Yeah, I like trying different things. And, you know, I mean, the central thing is I'm, I'm a guitarist in the middle and I have to play very well. But I like to try and advance harmonically. You know, I mean, I made a Monk, Thelonious Monk album, I had a Mink, Mingus album. Those were fairly challenging. And I played with a Kronos quartet. Yep. Or, you know, I mean, you have to really step up to the plate to do these things. They're, you know, it takes a lot of discipline, practice, and you know, well, actually, sophistication because you have to keep, yeah, 
opening your ears and learning how to do it. I mean, you know, this it's, it's never ends. You know, I think I'm just about ready to start into maybe trying to make a new album now, you know, because one's out, that's done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Looking at probably your next spring, so I need to start thinking about. You know, I have to get right into it. You know, and be in the music, you know, compositional phase. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I there's that I was looking here again. One of the sto- stories you have no value, you know, <laughs> which is the, which has the punk band, you know, yes. the Deaf Mutes. And what I like about it is the fact that you know, like I think it's the bassist, and she's like, it's like I don't have to do a lot, but I have this attitude and this presence, and it's awesome. Mm-hmm. And they revel in this lo-fi, <laughs> yeah. not truly musical genre, and they're having fun. And then when they get better. The band they get successful and the band breaks up because like yeah. the magic is yeah. gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in that yeah. case, they weren't they really shouldn't have been accomplished yeah. musicians. <laughs> no. Yeah, that was fun to write. When the pole punk thing was happening, how I mean, obviously you you make little commentaries on different genres. So you have fun poking fun at heavy metal and, and different mm. things, and even people who take themselves as serious instrumentalists who really aren't. Like with the mm. whole punk thing, it was like this burst of energy. Did you ever think that we'd still be talking about punk? all this time all these years um, later well you know i mean it's amazing because you know we were in you know it, well it was sort of the flag of convenience you know when you know the police at the beginning was supposed to be a punk band because in that atmosphere in london that was so strong at that time if you weren't punk you just were out of out of business you had yeah. to be you had to be and of course none of us were actually although we tried to fly the flag for a little while because yeah yeah we had and, you had energy for sure Oh, well, we had energy. You know, we were hammering it out and we were good, you know, but we weren't really punks. And of course, what we really were started to knit together and, and you know, the rest is history sort of thing. But that because part, and part of that is because we could never get a gig. And so all we could do is rehearse and, you know, hope that the dream would happen someday. So we spent a great deal of time rehearsing in filthy basements in London and, you know, suddenly it broke into the light particularly when we came to the US, of yeah. course, and we played at CBGB's, thinking, oh, it's the mecca of punk. And they absolutely loved us. And it was like, America. You know, America is a much more musical place than England. England's much more about fashion than that. And I think that's partly why the punk thing succeeded so well, because it was a real look. We turned up at CBGB's, mm-hmm. everybody was much looser, and they were digging the, the music we were playing. And that was what really encouraged us and made us feel oh maybe we have something we did that mini tour of the east coast up to boston and back and right much, but enough to pull us together so it was very important uh, um so the punk thing sort of carried us in into being a band and get getting a few gigs and you know and moved on from there that was the thing with blondie too because they were part of that whole cbs sort of scene and they to, to me never struck me they had punk energy but it was a different thing yeah. it wasn't like they were well, a big think- punk band yeah, no, I mean, and I, and it was a sort of a relief when we got to New York that they weren't really calling it punk, they were calling it New Wave. Yeah. So yeah. we said, oh, no, we're like Talking Heads or Blondie or, well, the Ramones were pretty punk. Who else would it have been? Oh, television would have been one. Television. But we grouped ourselves, you know, as far as you could say anything to anybody, we put ourselves in with that lot. It yeah, felt yeah. much more natural to us. Another thing, too, I, I think there's, you know, there's, there's so many different things I could talk about these stories. For example, you know, you sort of have the literal love of a guitar. <laughs> yeah. I think there's that one great story. So I don't want to give away endings to things, but there is that one great story of this woman who's a guitar player and she's, she wants to be the groupie to this band, but you realize that the real reason she wants to, is she wants to play the guy's guitar. <laughs> That's like the, the yeah. end of it's more satisfying. I think to play the, his guitar. 
than actually oh, do it. The, yeah, is that the red guitar with the girl somewhere in South America? Yeah. She sees the bands coming somewhere in Brazil and she gets ready for it. Yeah. That was it. Yeah, there, there, are, little, there are little twists that, that go on. I noticed there's a character named Sullivan. I don't know if it's the same guy, but the name yeah. Sullivan appears in at least three stories. Is that the yeah, same maybe guy? Four. Yeah, I, I came up with one. You know, he's this rock star, but I, I found him personally. I enjoyed writing it. I thought, oh, well, maybe this character can appear again. And I thought it was sort of a nice trick to put him in three or four stories in the book to give the book some continuity. In fact, one of the very last stories in the book, here it is. There it is. I, just, I have my PDF, which is my... Yeah, this is the only one in existence, yeah. Oh, um, wow, really? You, you, I, I had that happen once, yeah. Yeah, just a rough proof. Yeah, the last one is, um, is called She's Everything, where he's a kid and he appears in, you know, right at the end. And there's a story before that, which is in where he's trying to meet his... Ice blonde. Yes, exactly. And, and at that time, his, the song, as he tries to cross the restaurant, trunk off his ass the song is playing and it's like a number one hit. And then I think the last story is he's in the house in the East End of London with his, probably his cousin. And he plays the song. He's like nine or 10 years old and he's already got that song. So anyway, just rising. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, you know, you've been, this is, you've written these over a number of years. This just didn't happen overnight over a year. No, I had some of them, you know, a few years back and I, you know, maybe five or six of them. And I read, a few people read them and they were very nice about it and encouraged me, you should do more of this. You know, and then I eventually I was out, you know, gigging and uh, read a couple of them on stage and it went really well. And same thing, you should do more, you know. So I said, you know what, I, I'm going to try and do this. So I had to start into it and I said, well, let me just really get down on it and uh, go for it. It always sounds like the beginning of another Andy Summers story, which is like, well, I, I, everyone encouraged me to do this, and I did this, and then there's some weird twist at the end that gets really meta, yeah. and it wraps up the book, and you're like, wait, what? Yeah. I, I, because there is there's a meta quality to a lot of the stories, and you also, I mean, sometimes you're trying to capture a feeling. I mean, there's an irony to some of the endings, obviously. Like I said, I feel like there's O. Henry little twists here and there. There's yeah. certain things that, you know, could even uh, do well in like an episode of Tales from the Crypt if you turn it into a horror thing, or like, you know, it just... Like the shock comes, and then there's other ones where you're at a you're about in the middle of this dramatic turning point. Like there's the guy, there's the, is it the uh, Flying V Club? Yeah, you're Flying V, and it's the guitar aficionado group that becomes a secret, almost like a secret society that people want yes. to join, but they won't let anybody in. And so they have the two competing guys who are trying to come up with more obscure knowledge, and this one guy decides to fake the the photo of an yeah. a, a southern black bluesman, and and this guy goes on the trip. And it's going well. And he's like, wait, what's going on? Like, that is like a really surreal thing because you don't know. And you, it, it, it leads up to the ending as to what is actually going to happen. And you're still doing a cliffhanger thing with that story. Yeah. 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 Why, why do you think you're attracted to those kinds of almost non-endings? Well, like I think, it, well, yeah, then you know, everybody can think what they like. But you, I mean, uh, a story like that, well, we don't want to say too much here. Yeah, I know it's it's tricky to talk I about it. Away. Yeah, because I think it, it, it. I think a. I think it's more like real life. This is more the you know, life doesn't have all these happy tied up endings. I mean, occasionally those things happen, but my sensibility is to leave it wide open and with a question mark, and people can think what they like or imagine what they like. It's a much hipper way to to write. Um, I think the last thing you want to do is tie it all up and. Well, that was a classic example of that. You know, after all that, that fantastic setup. 
you, you sort of yeah you, there's some there's a lot of these endings where it doesn't say what happened and you can imagine what happened but then at the other point you, they're actually kind of departures for debate i could see a bunch yeah. of people then reading it and then going and having drinking and, and arguing over what they actually think yeah. happened in that story and what didn't well i always like that personally if it's a movie let's say movies what we all watch movies and stories yeah. narratives that you I, I much prefer that films end with the open-ended question it's, it's just more interesting. Well, I think that's also the difference between European and American sensibilities. Well, I think it is. It is. And that's what I, of course, I'm from England and I grew up with <laughs> French, Italian and German movies. No, no, Japanese, I should say, because I was a, I'm a major Kurosawa yeah, fan. Yes, so you mentioned Kurosawa. There's a couple of Kurosawa films. I think this one you actually mentioned twice, isn't there? I feel like there is. You do have the one about the guy that wants to leave. It's the film that he wants his family to leave Japan because he's worried about another Hiroshima. And yeah, that's they, called I Live in Fear. That's it. Wonderful. Do I put that in the book? You did put that in the book. Oh, God. It's I in one of, the, one of the stories. And it, it's... Wow. But you do have old school Hollywood in another story because I think I think this is the one that's the Hill of Beans oh. where the guy's the bartender in Japan and he's playing a lot of jazz. And yeah. then this woman comes in and actually knows the music, but they basically play out as if they're the characters in Casablanca. Yeah, I really enjoy, I, I got that in one night. One night I just came up with it I, and I almost wrote it straight out like that. The only thing, a research I had to do on that, because I love the idea. So it's, you know, influenced by Murakami, the Japanese writer, mm -hmm. and, you know, Kurosawa, if you like, and, uh, you know, Bogart films. And then, you know, she's so hip to the jazz. You know, she knows that that's Kenny Burrell playing on that track. You know, she goes, yeah. he goes his heart leaps oh my God, she's beautiful and she's mysterious. And she knows about Kenny Burrell on that track. And then they go on to like the Bogart quotations. I had to look at the Bogart quotations to really get it. So, you know, because a lot of them I remember, but, you know, being a Bogart fan, uh, you know, and it ends with, uh, you know, El Rick, Elsa, Ilsa, yeah. you know, just like in the movie, you know, the greatest movie ever made, you know. What's interesting is also you, I mean, I think about this, you know, I'm like, I'm a total, I'm a, I'm a pop culture geek. So I like movies and music and things. And I'm, I'm very high art and low art. So like, I love 2001 is my favorite movie. I love blow up. Yeah. Um, and I love uh, films of Alan Rudolph, who sort of was mentored by Robert Altman. I love the moderns. Mm -hmm. I love miracle mile. Then, you know, I love alien versus predator. <laughs> and I love Friday the 13th part eight, Jason takes Manhattan. And it's like, yeah. it's kind of difficult sometimes to find people who appreciate what they call the guilty pleasure. But there are some stories in here, at least two or three, I think, where there's a man who I think is looking for the woman that has that. It's like that story yeah. where, where like they really desire a woman who understands this stuff, which I think probably happens more easily for millennials and Gen Z than it does for boomers and Gen X. I don't know why that is, but I, I find that. Yeah. Maybe it's because in the eighties when I was growing up, the geek thing was considered a male thing. And there were female geeks. There were girls, you know, girls in my school like sci-fi and fantasy. And they might not have been into slasher movies and, and metal yeah. and stuff. But it, I noticed that, have you found a lot of people like that, that it maybe it's just hard in general that when you're really passionate about something specific like that, that it's hard to find someone to relate to? Yeah, well, it is. Yeah, you can geek out over something. I mean, something like Bogart films is not so geeky because it is popular culture. Right. But, you know, if you're talking to a younger person, they may not be hip to all that. And the great Bogart films, for instance, or someone like W.C. Fields, you know, like sure. I have grandkids and I've showed them W.C. Fields. They actually kind of got it, you know, even though they're all black and white movies. Sure. Sort of, uh, got with the program. 
But they have their own WC fields in Bogarts, or what they consider to be anyway. Oh, they have well, their they, own. Yeah, icons. they'd have their modern day version, you know, kids' versions of it, you know, in the, in the period we're in now. So that's all fine too. But it's fun to, you know, you know, if you've got a subject matter like that to geek out with somebody else who's really into it, and yeah. to find it between male and female, um, probably more difficult, you know, I suppose. And it's not that there aren't female geeks. I just feel like there are more female geeks at a younger age. And I think, and I could be wrong. I've had this sort of debate with people. I sort of feel like, I think part of it too is when we were growing up, it was more of the guys that were into certain things. There were a lot more gender stereotypes about the way you were raised. And now people today just do whatever. Yeah. I, I go to New York Comic Con every year and there are yeah. a lot more women 40 and below who really are into this stuff, which is great. There's more yeah. of a balance. But I think they're also being, the industry is paying attention to the fact that they have storylines that they have to tell for them, which weren't happening when we were growing up. It was very male centric. Um, I, mean, yeah. I grew up with metal. Metal was very white and male centric back in the 70s and 80s and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's a different, yeah, it is. Well, I guess that's, there are people who just specialize in you know, seeing what these trends are as we devolve. You know, as we devolve, <laughs> isn't it weird that like, we have all these amazing possibilities with technology, with music, with movies, and yet I somehow feel that a lot of that is being underutilized. Like it's not actually being utilized in the right way all the time. We have a lot of amazing looking films, but the stories aren't blowing me away. No, we have amazing I, I sounding yeah. albums that are not as good in some ways. Like people, yeah, I do. I find that somewhat dispiriting because you know you sit down to watch TV, you go to Netflix, and go no, 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 shit, 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 shit. Yeah, you know, all your <laughs> all American films, and you have to look elsewhere. Often, good ones are English, yeah. British, or European. Occasionally, you'll get an American one, but it, it's it's um, most of the stuff that comes out in, out in the states, unfortunately, is really terrible. Oh, yeah, too many superheroes, too much of all that stuff. I'm still a big Marvel Comics fan, but I totally get why a lot of people are turned off by it. I mean, I, I understand, like, I'm a horror fan, but I understand why certain people are turned off by horror movies. I mean, I just understand that it is sort of a certain well, sensibility. You know, I think you're right. And if you talk about something like Friday the 13th, they're almost art house by today's standards. <laughs> they're horror. You they know, should you use that on a poster for a reissue. Psychological thriller, which is different than having to believe in, you know, people with superpowers and all that, which I, I get a bit tiresome. I find tiresome. Yeah, well, it's I can understand some people. I understand why people don't go for it. And then I also, I appreciate a lot of independent films. And I do feel that, like in the in the Spotify, I mean, well, I mean, in the Spotify landscape for you with your with your own music, I mean, how have you found yourself reaching other people that you wouldn't have because so much music is more available is more available now? Well, I mean, I don't sit around looking at the numbers and worrying about it. I mean, I'm just I'm more like getting on the next piece of music. But uh, you know, of course, I know I'm on Spotify, I'm on YouTube, I've got all these things, and I, I'm on social media every day. And I have help with it. You know, I have a manager and agent and I have people who run the social media. And that's basically as a musician, like so many of us now, that's like the only gig there is yeah. until one day, maybe, you know, maybe towards the end of next year, we can go back out there and be on stage. You know, I'm waiting for that moment desperately. But meanwhile, um, you've had to become a performer and entertainer and, you know, composer for the, for the internet and for, yeah. Instagram, Facebook, all that. And I do do things. I, I think probably in August, I'll make a few more videos to put out. I put out, you know, I have a collection of videos because I've been doing this a long time. And I, I think I had something like 120 videos. Really? That I could slowly like feed into the Instagram, you know, and of course they have to be technically 
uh, your past albums? It. Or is it also live yeah. stuff? Yeah, I've put it, you know, basically re-put out again. What's the right word? Re- Reissued. Reissued everything I've ever done. <laughs> because there's, there's the platform. And I'm heavily encouraged to do it. Um, you're, what you're supposed to have now is a social media profile. And you're yes. supposed to work at it if you're in the business. If you don't have any social media profile, I mean, probably managers and promoters aren't even going to be interested in you. Even as a writer, I find it strange because I, I feel like at the end of the day, it has to be the work first. Uh, you know, you're selling it. People are, are calling themselves a brand now, which is very weird to me because it's you can't live your life that way. I mean, yes, you know, you're building up a persona, but sometimes I feel like there's too much about personality enough about substance. And you, I think you have to have something to sell first, and then you can use that as a way to express yeah, yourself. Yeah, I mean, calling yourself a brand. No, no, we used to call it being an artist. Hello, <laughs> I'm a fucking can of soup. Come on. And, you know, go through pain and struggle of trying to make something fresh, original, you know, finding a voice, not being a brand. I mean, that's modern thinking, you know. And it, I'm very old school, I think, at this point. <laughs> yeah, well, I am. I'm sort of, I mean, I'm trying, I'm adapting to sort of the new environment. Like, I know I need to do more, do more video stuff on Instagram and other places. Um, mm. and, and obviously, you want to try new projects. I mean, I did, I started doing this podcast a couple of years ago, and I said, you know, I should use my voice because it doesn't sound too bad recorded. And, you know, I, yeah. I've done a movie junkets where I've been on camera and done things. And I look at you doing the, this writing. I mean, you've been on stage numerous times. I'm sure you're over the, the whole nervousness about going on stage part. By this point, well, some people have stage fright. I don't know. Well, a little bit of that is is okay. You know, I mean, it's going to be a little nervous. Yeah, you know, a little bit nervous. Yeah, puts a bit of tension into it, then you relax into it. But yeah, it doesn't freak me out. No. But you know, when you were reading your stories initially, was that harder to do than getting up on stage and playing your guitar? Yeah, I mean, you're completely there. That's you. You know, no, nothing between you and you know. And, uh, but you know, I, I seem to be able to rise to the occasion without too much trouble. And I and I've done it, and, and it goes well. So I think I'm I'm okay with it. And I think the more you do it, it's just like anything else. The more relaxed you get, and you get you get you know, hopefully you get funnier. You can you can relax into it. And I will be definitely doing some of that with these stories as you know the pandemic allows us. Are you gonna do like virtual book tour kind of a thing? Yeah, I mean, there's stuff coming up. I'm thinking about doing some stuff with it in London, probably in the fall. Yeah, good, that would be a good idea. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm up for it. It's a strange time, you know. It's sort of a strange time because we do all this stuff. I do love doing Zoom, just like like I said with my podcast. I just I just use the audio, but it's nice to actually see yeah. you because you can sort of see the reactions and. Sometimes yeah. I've done so many phoners over the years and it's gotten more, le- there's a lot less in person than there used to be. And now with the pandemic, there's no in person. But some people don't like it. I mean, I just, I think it's interesting because I, I've always liked in-person interviews more, but then it depends also what time it is. You get somebody before a show and they're exhausted. That's probably not the best yeah. thing. Yeah. And, 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 and again, you have, you have at least, you have three or four different sort of fake magazine interviews in here, which are fun, <laughs> you know, which kind of make different comments because well, of all the stuff you've been through, I'm sure. In your career. Well, you know, I mean, I'm sure I went through all these, and I did go through them all. And I probably in my head went, "Mark, can you fucking believe that the way that guy just talked to me, that journalist or whatever?" And so now, now, hmm. uh, you know, I had all that info and real life experience to draw on, you know. But you can have fun with it. You know? Yeah, that one, that one young rock star in the one story, the guy that was faking his stalking, I think. Yeah, I think it's the one. And and he has that sort of condescending journalist come and at the end sort of like pat him on the head and say, you know, do your research next time. (laughs) It's like, wow, really? I would never do that to anybody. I feel like almost the British press is tougher than the American press in the sense. Horrible. Why do you why do you think that is? 
I don't know. It's just, um, well, you know, I don't, okay, there may be many reasons, but I mean, one of the reasons I, I finally left England, I think, was just the sort of tabloid filth of li living in England and that they're on you all the time. And we all went through it. We certainly went through it. And they'd be on you for everything. Not the Times or the Guardian, but, you know, the Daily Mirror, the Sun, all the absolute shit papers. The Mirror. Screaming <laughs> headlines, you know. I mean, one really gets tired of it. And I did find that the US is not it's not so prevalent it's not so bad here i mean because it's a physically much yeah. bigger country and and you felt like get out of that it's sort of funny that you're mentioning that england is more about fashion and i interviewed gary newman a few weeks ago and he was yeah. saying how he likes america because it's more forward thinking in the music and then ironically i was thinking yeah but his last album went number two in the uk <laughs> it? Really? it did and i maybe there was a nostalgia thing i don't know i mean like he's still putting out good music but it's interesting how again like i guess it depends you could have something you, you you've been doing music consistently and for some reason you just have this album that hits and you can't always explain why that is yeah. i mean for you i guess at this point you're not really worrying about platinum sales you seem to be doing music more a lot just for no, the love of it at this uh, point. yeah i mean my concern yeah no i want to make very nice you know great music and uh, you know and then you've got to package it and so i spent quite a lot of time i've got like this next cd the package is like a six panel cd wow. so you know i try to make it like a, an art object it's a collector's item we're not going to sell a million of these because it's it's just we're not in that world anymore it's all going to be on spotify and it'll be on amazon and you'll do the best you can but i want to make it like a very beautiful package as well you know outside of the music and i enjoy doing that with the guy actually here in LA graphic designer that's cool so yeah you know I, I mean I enjoy it and um so I but I don't have gigantic expectations of like the sales I I hope it does well and it will probably do okay I interviewed Roger Dean almost 20 years ago and he told me he felt that I asked him about things shrinking because obviously he was known for yes and Uriah Heap and Asia all these different great covers yeah and he said he actually felt that the music industry did have a chance to do something in miniature that they didn't they kind of they, they they lost the opportunity to do good things in miniature. I think by the time the industry got into all the deluxe packaging is when streaming came into play. And they're like, oh, now we have to do something to keep people buying CDs yeah. when they could have been doing it before. Yeah, you know, and giving you a great package. Yeah, well, we all like great packages, and I, I felt absolutely with this record, I want to make a great package that people want to have it because of the photographs on it, that you know, the way it looks and everything else, and also, of course. Always now, the record company wants you to make vinyl. It'll be a double vinyl out a few months later. Isn't it interesting that vinyl and cassettes, cassettes are back also in a smaller way, but they're back. Great. <laughs> I never mind cassettes. And zines. I still have all my cassettes. I do have a lot of my cassettes. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of stuff that didn't get put back in print. Yeah. I, oh, I, I'm going to mention that to them. Let's have a, we make a cassette. People do like limited quantities, but I have seen like, I think I did see like, you know, uh, maybe a Kanye West. There's some people that are indie, a lot of indie bands are doing like you on Bandcamp and they do it, but there are a lot of mainstream artists that have also done it. Like they, I may have seen Eminem, like they just, for whatever reason, it, it'll, it'll occupy a small part of the store, but there's this return to wanting analog stuff like fanzines are becoming popular, like actual printed fanzines and not blog versions. Yeah. And vinyl, you know, it's more expensive than it ever was back in the day. Even with inflation, it's more expensive to buy vinyl these days. Yeah, no, I mean, they're not going to make 500,000 vinyl albums. They might make a couple of hundred because of yeah. the expensive, you know, it's high quality vinyl. You know, and I said, and there's no way it comes out. I said to the guy in London, it, does it come out the same day as the CD? Of course not. 
they're all lining up to be able to get into the factory. So now we're going to have this as a book. This will be analog. This will be an actual book, not just a PDF on your Kindle. <laughs> and there's actually the cover, the cover art here. The cover art, you know, this is the cover art, which I think is really a nice piece. And I, this was a girl in Los Angeles, artist some years ago. I commissioned her to make this painting for a CD. And then for some reason, I didn't use it. And as I got to know the publisher a little bit, he said, well, what about the cover? Have you got one of your photographs? I said, this actual painting yeah. is up on my kitchen wall. I said, I think I have what you would really like as a cover and let me send it to you. So I made a digital photograph and he said, oh, you got it. No contest. So this is by Laura Josephson. Okay. And I think she's listed here in the front of the, the PDF that I have. That's so I was going to ask about her name. Laura Josephson. Yeah, Laura Josephson. Yeah. So people can check out her stuff. Yeah. It kind of fits actually, you know, because it's, it's, there's definitely an irreverent, an irreverent quality yeah. to this book. You yeah, seem like you I were like ha- it because it's sort of comic. The guy's got a guitar and it, I don't know, he's got a red face. It's so great all these years later because I've been looking at it in my kitchen for years and suddenly here it is on the cover of the book. <laughs> it's cool. I think she was pleased. I was pleased, you know, found her, you know, luckily. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm probably going to go back on some of the stories. Like I was just looking at the jazz wife again. <laughs> well, yeah. Talk about a twist of fate, you know, it's like, how much have any of those kinds of twists of fate actually factored into your life? Have you had any sort of surreal experiences that weren't documented here that inspired you with these kind of stories? Well, they're all, you know, I've either heard about them, been around it. You know, these most of these things have happened to people I've known or something or other. You know, I, I tour in Brazil a lot. And the guy down there that always looks after me, he's full of these tales. And, you know, he would start like yakking away and coming out with, in fact, that tell that one, the one you just mentioned, is was was from him, not from him. Like he he said something about some American jazz singer that went down there and got into trouble like this, and I just took that funny thought and turned it into this story. Yeah, I always write down. I have a lot of short stories I want to to do. I mean, I always trying to do creative writing, but I'm always trying to survive and make a living, which is you know, <laughs> I'm sure for you it's the same thing. I mean, I'm sure you know it took you a while to write all these stories and have them come together. Yeah. Um, that, it, it's interesting. I was I was talking to somebody today and saying how I read this book by Neil Gaiman. Oh yeah, it was about I think it was just called On Writing. He talked about the fact that he had had written a story idea and then he didn't go back to it for a decade, and then he went back to it and was like, oh, now I think I can work with this. Mm. Now, does that happen in your life as far as music? Yeah. Like, you had, like you had an idea, and then fifteen years later, like, hey, I should do something with this. Oh yeah, and you know, I mean, I'm a huge believer in you know distance and time, especially with the creative stuff, because. Uh, when you're right on top of it, you can't see it. Then you go back. You know, it's very true in recording. Just don't listen to it for a few days. You can't solve it right now. You're too yes. into it. Then I'll wait. Give me, give me like three days away from it. And then I go, oh, got it. I know where it should go. You know, what the, the missing part. Yeah, no, and it's the same in all these things. Um, I was in Long Island over the weekend. And I'm writing, a, trying to come up with this crazy screenplay idea. But I find... One of the best ways to approach it is to stop doing it. You know, I get to a, you know, you get to a point, creative yeah. point, writing point, and I go, I don't know, I, I don't know where it's going, and then to stop, and then you know, three hours later, you're doing some completely different activity, and then suddenly you get it pops into your head. I have that that, that whole thing with writing. I will yeah. I, a lot of times I'm on deadline, and I just have to turn it in, and some editors will send it back to you with corrections, and other ones will just 
do what they're going to do with it and put it up or they put it in the, in the magazine. You're like, I like the editors that actually come back to me. And then a day later, I've reconsidered what I was writing. Did you have a lot of these short stories that were that were like that, that maybe put yeah, down? Yeah, I, I think so, you know, because um, I'd get a number of them going, you know, and each would have certain problems. And, um, and then in a way, I think they, they fed from one into the other, you know, so that in a way it makes the overall work it's more more coherent you know it's not like what the fuck's that got to do with the rest of this you know yeah they kind of inform one another and um i like being that in that sort of stew in the head and then suddenly you get it you know and i if i'd be i can't think of it it would never come it's it's just putting it down for a while and then letting it that i'm a big believer in the unconscious will like solve it for you yeah, that is great. I mean, I, I feel like I have, to, I have to go back to some stuff I've written and see what happens. Because you also get older, you get life experience. I, I do feel that there are some things that you have a lot of young people with fresh ideas. And then at yeah. the same time, you also have older people that have maybe a fresh variation on something. Or I think it is interesting that, you know, when we were growing up, what we liked, our parents probably looked at like, what what's going on? And now we look at what a lot of younger people like and we do the same thing because it's it's a generational thing and also... Yeah. You view things differently. Like I took my my best friend and I took our dads to see, I think it was Skyfall, you know, yeah. one of the last Daniel Craig Bond movies, the third yeah. one. They had a good time, but I could tell they weren't like, you know, going to be gushing over it because they've been around longer and they've seen all the different changes and yeah. you start recognizing, oh, yeah, this is what's going to happen. I think I had movies ruined for me when when some guy in a, one one article wrote, well, anything you see on screen that's significant will probably play a part in the movie later on. <laughs> and then you start yeah. you start thinking that way. You're like, Yep. All right. So I try to I try to be naive about it and just ignore what I'm watching at a certain point. So I can try. You can still be surprised, but I feel like even music, it's tricky. And sometimes it isn't always about coming up with a fresh new idea. It's a fresh variation. I mean, you've done so many albums, I imagine. Sometimes you might have a piece and go, okay, this isn't new, 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 but yet this is Andy now at this age, rather than if I recorded this 20 years ago. It's so interesting. I mean, because you don't want to get jaded. you know, and you've had a life experience, you've done all this stuff. Um, and it'd be very easy just to fall into that mode of, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know, it's no good. You know, try and be fresh, since it with the eyes of a kid or something. I mean, this is a real cliche, but yeah, if you want to like know what's going on with them, you know, you can have to like sort of forget about all your own experience for a minute and just try to see it that way. Not like, oh, well, it's this, it's that, it's this. I, you know, I, I have grandkids now, so they're around and it's a whole other world that they're looking at and I try and get down with it you know let's see if I can see through their eyes yeah exactly exactly yeah I have some I have friends that are younger than me and I like having friends I have friends older than me I have friends younger than me and this business allows us to meet a variety of people that we would not under most other circumstances get to meet because of the fact that we are in the arts and then you often get invited to things that aren't really connected to that but you know somebody who does this and all of a sudden you're exposed to this wide range of people and it makes it interesting because i i get challenged on things occasionally i don't mind it i mean sometimes and then sometimes you get older and certain things you understand why a movement is happening and some of it you still think is bullshit like you're like yeah, yeah i get why they're doing it but the way this is being done it's going to change in five years like it's, it's we're not going to be using this terminology or it'll it will evolve also into something else yeah and of course the greatest factor in all of this for all of us is the internet we never used to have this well that's so true no- I mean, you came about as an artist at a time when you didn't have, you didn't have the exposure the way you would now. You had to get on the radio. You had to have people, yeah. you had to have advertising. You had to have somebody behind you to to blow up the way you did. 
and it seems like now there is the chance to reach people, but it's still it's still not a level playing field. I, I but it's still there's at least I feel like kids today, like your grandkids, probably mm-hmm. are going to listen to a wider range of music than we ever did growing up because of the sheer exposure and availability. However, I don't know if they'll listen to it with the same intent that we did. No, it's, oh, no, yeah, it's a big conversation. <laughs> we used to go to record stores through the albums, you know, and all this, and it was so important, you know, to that, you know, that growing, mature, reading, you know, I grew up educating myself through reading album liner notes. Exactly, and they don't have them now. No, no, you don't have anything like that now. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying it's better or worse. I mean, but you tend to treasure those experiences of your own youth, whatever time period sure. you're in. You know, in my case, I was going to London and looking through in these sort of dark cavern-like stores, right, leafing through the racks and reading these things about all these mysterious artists. It was, uh, <laughs> and so, well, some are still mysterious. Like, I think Bill Nelson hasn't really released all of his stuff digitally. I think you still have to, you have to hunt some of it down. Cause I was thinking when you were talking about reissuing all this stuff, I, I heard Bill Nelson was going to do that. And then I don't know if he has or not. I have to go look here. Oh, yeah, pretty good career. I guess he's so pretty prolific. Yeah. So and like you, he kind of skips around genres and he doesn't try to stay into one. Yeah, that day, he's still going. Yeah. Cause he, he was always very good. I haven't heard about him for a long time. I, I mean, even those fret records now that you know, the ones I did with Robert are pretty old. They, they were seemed significant at the time, and I think they challenged a lot of people. Uh, I still now, think it's interesting. Yeah, I'm I mean, glad they're getting a fresh airing. You know. No, I love that they are, but you know, whatever. I mean, they were good efforts at the time. Well, a lot of the music we grew up with, actually. I mean, I remember I met Brian Eno a few years ago, and. Yeah. I only had like five minutes to chat with him at this event. And I said, you know, a lot of modern soundtracks now have this ambient ethereal quality to it. Are you surprised at how many of them seem to be drawn from your kind of influence? And he said, I'm amazed it took him so long to catch up. <laughs> like all the world music stuff too. And I'm like, okay, fair yeah. enough, you know. But now that's become a cliche, that kind of yeah. droney thing or after the Dark Knight came out, all those kind of dramatic strings, that, 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 that really dramatic kind of cascade of strings and, it's interesting to see what's actually going to come up next. And I mean, in your, in, as far as like your writing, I mean, do you, do you envision doing other types, other things? Do you want to go beyond? I mean, obviously you say you're taught working on a screenplay. Yeah, I, I do. I do. I mean, I, I, I feel like, you know, I got this done, you know, all these things are so tremendously difficult to get people to pay attention to actually do it, produce yeah. a book. I mean, it's very hard, you know. Um, now I feel that this is sort of kind of up and running that I could probably start turning towards doing something new. But I felt like I had to get this out before I could carry on. So yeah. but now, now we're there. So I am actually moving on and talking about working with a couple of people in LA that happens. That's cool. I'm going to go Hollywood. <laughs> You're going to go Hollywood. You're going to sell out after all these years underground. No. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how it goes. yeah I'm, glad, I'm glad you did these. What is surprised, I guess, surprised you most about the way your life and career has gone? Is there anything unexpected that you just could not have predicted would have happened to you beyond the huge success, obviously, initially? But yeah. is there anything else in your life that's been that surprised you? Well, I think that, you know, basically, I mean, beyond all the glitz and all that and all yeah. that kind of stuff, I mean, I always wanted to, I want to, you know, I feel going through all that has just provided me with a way that I can just always be creative and working as a musician, which is what I always wanted to do, you know? It's great to be on the 80,000 a night stage, but that's that's not going to go on every night of your life. 
But also, so, it sounds like you're not you're not worried about the money part of it. I mean, you're well, not you're at this point. No, I mean, after that reunion tour, I mean, you'd have to look back again and you know, that kind of. <laughs> well, <laughs> hopefully, and you enjoyed it too. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, oh, fantastic. I have friends who regret not going to the police reunion tour they should um, because they figured to be they figured it'd be another one. You know, listen. The reality is, there's only three guys in the band, and we had to play our asses off every night. There's no faking it. We won't get out there, and they were playing tapes. It's absolutely real, you know, and in front of a huge audience every night. It's as real as it gets, and you you better know what you're doing. Well, you guys also were, I mean, you guys are also three individuals. And in listening to your solo stuff, like I listened to some of Stuart's solo stuff, I mean, you guys are, are incredibly accomplished musicians. And you get that together, because I know Stuart isn't going to play a basic backbeat. So <laughs> you're going to have to work around each other. I mean, now doing this new album yourself, I guess you're going to have to work around yourself. <laughs> yeah, I have an argument with myself. Um, Is that the first time you've done that, though? No, I mean, I've often played other things, but these, you know, I started playing drums a lot. I've gotten pretty good on drums. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, no, I actually started studying with a teacher and I kind of got my chops together. I've got drums at home, nice. drums in the studio. And, you know, I'm not going to spend my life playing the drums. But yeah, no, I can definitely play now bass of course you know so it's not so hard for me to to pull you know other instrumental tracks together to support yeah. you know pr- principally what i would be doing on on a guitar yeah i, I enjoy all that so the thing i like to ask people is what's the most important life lesson you can impart onto other people and younger people it's this impossible question it's like just don't give up you know i mean you can't come up with much other than a cliche Judging from the interesting stories in your book, what's been the most surreal musical experience you've had? Well, I think it might be, you know, playing on stage at Carnegie Hall with the Carnegie Hall Orchestra, doing a sort of guitar duo thing. That was pretty hallucinatory. And when was that again? Uh, it was something I did with a, a great classical guitarist in New York called Ben Verdery. Yeah. And, um, we had this Marshall Ingram, who was an avant-garde ECM, you know, classical composer, write this... Um, guitar two electric guitar and classical guitar with symphony orchestra wow based on balinese scales and we oh, had to wow. really shed to get that stuff together and we did and we did it but um boy that was tough. like you're hallucinating all the way through am i you know because you've got to stay with the orchestra all the way through you can't be one note out one part out that was tricky is indonesian music like Middle Eastern music in the sense that it's microtonal? Yes. Are you doing just intonation? It's, well, you know, a completely different set of instruments, of course, and different scales. But, um, well, they haven't got strings because it's all mallets. You know, it's all little gamelons. But, I mean, I, I don't know if it's really microtonal because they, 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 they have their marimba type. What do they call it? Gamelon. Gamelon. Yeah, gamelon. Yeah. But they're set to certain scales. Yeah, that's, it's not like a piano or anything. It's very different. Yeah, no, I mean, I think a lot of Arab, I mean, quarter Syrian, a lot of Arabic music, I think, has like quarter tones, things yeah. that we don't, we don't, my mother's a classically trained pianist, you don't have that in Western music. No, you don't, you don't have it. I had one, I had one guitar magazine editor years ago, he kind of questioned the whole microtonal music thing. I'm like, no, really, it's a thing. I know we don't do it here in the States, but like. They hear it, you know, especially in Indian music, you know, and they, you know, they pull their string up instead of down, you know. Yeah. What kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And they hear it. Correct. The question I should have asked earlier, really, 
that should wrap up with is which writers have been the most influential on you? The obvious question. I never remember the obvious questions. I go for the other ones. <laughs> well, there's so many. Um, you know, I wrote this down one day because it does come up. You know, am I influenced by, you know, there's so many writers, you know. But anybody specifically on this, like this project? You mentioned a Japanese author already. Well, Murakami. Yeah, I'm yeah. a big fan of Murakami. If you want to talk about, you know, I also like Sam Shepard a lot. Mm. Great American writer, very yeah. droll, very laconic, although he mostly writes about the West. I like Martin Amos a lot. Um, short stories, people like that. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. All right, mate. It was a lot of fun, but I'm glad you had fun with it. I think, I think the fans will have fun with it too. Yes. So. All right, sir. Well, thanks again. I'll see you. Hopefully, talk to you again sometime. Right. Thanks. Bye bye. That wraps up this latest installment of Side Jams. Please join me for my next episode, which will feature jazz drumming legend Billy Cobham. The music used in this episode is from Fox and the Law, and I licensed it through AudioSocket. Thank you very much for listening and your support. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.